As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me on this beautiful Friday afternoon. A few quick notes before we begin the Bible study. Next week, we won't have a Bible study. Uh, I'm going away for a little time, so I'm going to take a little bit of a break. But the week after, we're going to pick back up at our normal Wednesday nighttime, and then recordings are going to go back to happening on the following Friday. So this coming week, when you're hearing this recording, it's going to be coming out on Saturday. And next week, there's not going to be a recording, but then the following week, recordings will come out again on Fridays for our consistent time. So with all that out of the way, we've finally entered Jerusalem. That's where we spent the whole last chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. So as I mentioned, the past couple of weeks, we've been in Jerusalem. So two weeks ago, we finally made the triumphal entry. Jesus cleared out the temple. And over last week, we saw this conflict between Christ and the leaders of the people. And that's going to continue into this chapter, because within chapter 21, which we're going to be going through this week, we're going to see what's called the Apocalypse of St. Luke. So in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, that's the, the similar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have this motif of Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And within him talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, we see him pointing towards not only the end of time, but the second coming. And within that, we see ties to the book of Daniel and this topic of Jesus being the Son of Man. Uh, that messianic title we've already seen popping up a few times now in St. Luke's Gospel. And it's going to be within this chapter that we hear him kind of make this direct reference to what that means with regards to the second coming. So immediately in the prior chapter, chapter 20, we saw Jesus do this warning, give this warning rather, of being a be beware of the scribes who go about in long robes and love salutations in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue, in the place of honor and feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, that they, by this they will receive a greater condemnation. When Jesus was saying this, he was saying it in reference to his disciples. And the reason for that is whenever the scribes and the Pharisees come up within St. Luke's Gospel account, it's usually 
as an example to Jesus' disciples of how they're not supposed to act. So we see immediately picking up from there, Jesus is still in the temple, and the observation that he's going to make will link back to that section. So for us to kind of make sense of this, chapters didn't exist within the time when these scriptures were written. You didn't have all of these wonderful headings and verse numbers and whatnot that we have here that try to organize our thoughts. Rather, it was just one continuous text. So sometimes we end up in these strange places where things are referring to the chapter before, but the way that we've kind of dispersed it out, we forget that because we spent an entire week on chapter 20, and then we took a week off, and now we're in chapter 21. So it's important for us, again, to just remember that this is a continuation here. This is one chunk, honestly, starting in chapter 19 when Jesus entered the temple that will lead to the Last Supper and the latter days leading up to his passion in the next chapter. So with all of that preamble out of the way, my rambling is done, and we'll begin my next part of rambling with our actual session, starting with verse 1 of chapter 21 of St. Luke's Gospel. He looked up and saw rich, the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the living that she had. So what we see here is Jesus is still in the temple. And as he's looking up from where he is, he sees that there are rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. So this is an act of them offering what they have. People would come into the temple and they would dedicate to the temple not only money, but they would dedicate various implements and statues and whatnot to the temple itself. And within this offering, we need to kind of break down our uh, 21st century perception of how these things play out. Because within this offering, the people are making an offering to God. Even though they're giving this offering to the temple, what is the temple? Well, the temple is the home of God, is the place where the people are going to give worship to God. We've seen the scribes and Pharisees misusing, though, throughout the entirety of St. Luke's Gospel account, their authority. Because they're that in-between. They're the ones who are supposed to be ministering to those gifts within that specific context. Yet, as we talked about at the end of chapter 20, the scribes are the ones devouring widows' houses. They're going around and doing what they're not supposed to do and misusing the gifts and responsibilities entrusted to them. And because of that, oftentimes we can miss the reality of what's happening when people are giving tithes or making sacrifices. Because we see the human element, and yet we forget why the people are doing what they're doing. In making these offerings to the treasury, they're dedicating these things to God. They're giving back the gifts that God has given to them. And so that's what's at play here. So when Jesus sees this poor widow putting in two copper coins, he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the living that she had. 
So Jesus is not condemning the rich people for being rich. Rather, he's articulating, expressing how great the sacrifice of this widow is because she has nothing. If we want to remember again the motif of who are the most lowly people in the Bible, well, usually those lowly are expressed as being widows and orphans. This is the constant cry from the prophets against the kings, that they're mistreating the widows and the orphans. They're not taking care of the widows and the orphans. And yet, these widows, as we see here, are not passive characters in the scripture. Because here is an individual. She's identified as being a widow. And yet, even she has a sacrifice to give. Typically, within the scriptures, we see the widows as being the ones who are being cared for. But here Jesus shows us that even though this person is in this lowly status within society, even she has something to give. And what she contributes and what she gives is said to be the whole of her living. So that's everything that she had. So even though she's only seen as giving physical wealth, what she's really offering is her whole self. And this goes back to what we've been talking about within this entire gospel narrative. Because St. Luke, yes, his focus is on physical class and on physical wealth, but he's using these examples to show us what we truly need to do in self-offering. It's not enough for us to just give things. Yes, some of us have more things than others, and yes, some of us are called to give material wealth in a certain way, but at the end of the day, what we're called to give to the glory of God is the whole of our being, not just our material gain. So even though St. Luke is using material gain as this example, what he's pointing to is the higher offering that we're truly called towards. Because this widow, yes, she uses these two coins, and she gives these two coins towards the glory of God. But we're told that she also offers her whole living, all that she had. So whenever we're making sacrifices or offerings, we need to think about this within a more personal perspective. It's not enough for us to just go around and say, okay, well, I gave my tithe for the year, and now I've checked off my giving the God box. We need to ask the why behind giving tithes. It's not because, okay, I give my money to the church, I'm a member of the church, and that's it. Rather, it's what is your money going towards? And if you don't have money to give, well, what is it that you're supposed to offer? Well, you're supposed to offer your talents. You're supposed to offer whatever means that you have to the glory of God, ultimately. And the reason for that is we don't own anything that we have. Because we can't create, truly, anything that is given to us. Because everything that's within this created order made out of matter is ultimately created by God and entrusted to us as stewards. So even down to our own life, we are called to use that gift to the glory of God. And this is the example we'll see in the martyrs, because the martyrs offer up their very life. But the reason why they do it is to give witness to God. So they're not doing these things of themselves. Nothing that we do, nothing that we give is in isolation from God. Because everything ultimately needs to be towards his glory. And this is what Jesus is pointing out here. 
This widow, even though she's a classic example of someone who has nothing to give, even finds a way to make a sacrifice and make an offering. And it's for that reason that she's exalted and glorified here. And held up to us as an example of how we're supposed to live. Because we're not only called to give what we think we're supposed to give in terms of here's the rule book, here's the money I'm supposed to give to the church every single year, so on and so forth. Rather, we're called to constantly discern what it is that God is calling us to offer in the whole of our life and with the whole of our life. So moving on to verse 5. And as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things which you see, the days will come when there shall not be one <clears throat> left here, upon a stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign when this is about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for this must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So here we begin what is referred to as the Apocalypse of St. Luke. And we need to first break down our English concept of what apocalypse means and kind of put ourselves in a first century Semitic and Greek mindset. So apocalypse really just means unveiling or revelation. We have a lot of these connotations of destruction that come along with it because of how we've played out apocalyptic literature in our culture. Uh, but that's not the case here. Rather, whenever we're reading apocalyptic literature within the Bible, well, it's literature that's pointing towards the eschatons, the end times. And what the end times are, from our tradition, are this reunion between God and his creation. Because of the fall of humanity, so when Adam and Eve fell away, we have this divide in the sense between us and God. It's a divide that we create through our sin. So sin, as we've talked about, it's not the stain or anything on us. Rather, it's a deviation from Christ. It's a missing of the mark. So whenever we sin, what do we do? Well, we fall off of the way. And if Christ refers to himself as the way, he is the physical road, well then, when we sin, we're missing him. And as we continue to sin, our actions have consequences. And the reactions to those actions begin to snowball in ways that we can't even begin to quantify. And so when we're repenting, well, what are we doing? Well, we're reorienting ourselves. We're physically falling down before Christ, as we've seen in the examples of those who have repented within St. Luke's Gospel in particular, as we saw with the sinful woman, or as we saw with Jairus for his daughter, all of these people take this physical posture of lowering themselves before Christ. And what that's emblematic of is them realizing, I don't truly know where I'm supposed to be going. I know that I'm wrong. I know that I'm off track. But now that I'm before you, I am humbling myself and lowering myself to the posture of a student 
so that way I can truly learn the way from you. So when we repent, we're doing the same thing. When we repent, we're falling down in a sense because we're acknowledging the fact that we're off base. And it's from that motion of falling down before Christ that we're then able to reorient towards him. We're then able to get back on track. And when that happens, well, the consequences from our sinful actions don't just go away. It's not something that just vanishes. Because, again, if there's this cascading effect of reactions to those initial actions that we have that we weren't able to even quantify... Well, chances are, as we get back on track, we're going to have to deal with those problems. And that's just the reality of sin. Because its reality is that, yes, it does affect the world, and it does affect our very life. But ultimately, we need to recognize these things as being, in a sense, natural, in this fallen sense, reactions to our actions. And so it's our responsibility, as we get back on track, to be able to face, we'll say, the consequences that we have created. So what's happening with repentance is, again, we're getting back on track. We're reorienting ourselves towards Christ. And Christ is ultimately the revelation to us of what has come. He is the Christ. He is the Messianic King. And with him, as we've talked about in this Bible study a few times now, has come a new age. So we have this conflict between this age, an age ruled by sin and death, because sin and death are a reality that we all experience, and the age that has come in Christ. The age that will come fully in his second coming, his parousia. So if we have these two poles that we're kind of stuck in, what does that mean for us who are Christians, those of us who have put on Christ? Well, in the words of St. Paul, it means that we are both in this age, so the age that's experiencing sin and death and all of the realities that come along for the ride there. And yet, because we've put on Christ, we are also participants in the age that has come and is coming. So when we're talking about the apocalypse and when we're talking about the second coming of Christ, we need to kind of wrap our heads around all of these realities because we have a promise of what is to come and that's also something that we can participate in in the here and now in fact the saints of the church that's exactly what they were doing they were living in this age but we see in the great works that they did that they were not of this age and that's the goal that we're all aiming towards because ultimately when christ comes again there's this fulfillment there's this reunion and everything is brought to where it was always intended to be. But the way for us to be able to participate in that, because we have free will, is for us to do the work now and set out to live life centered in him in the here and now. So when he returns, we're already standing in his presence. So when he returns, we're able to withstand him. So that's kind of the preamble of how we think of apocalyptic literature and repentance and whatnot and we could get into this for hours but i think it's important for us to just remember that whenever we're talking about the things that are coming we're not supposed to fixate on those because whenever apocalyptic literature comes up in the gospels in particular 
there's kind of three lenses that we need to look at it through simultaneously. So you have a historical apocalypse. So that's, there's always been some massive calamity that has happened in the past. An example of that will be the destruction of the temple, which Jesus has been talking about in this section. And then within that same vein, you'll always have a current apocalypse that you're dealing with. And the way for us to kind of contextualize that is think about any hardship or struggle that you are going through right now. Life is not at all short of calamities and hardships, and they affect each and every one of us within our lives in more ways than we might know. So when we're talking about apocalyptic literature, again, like Jesus is pointing us towards the reality that we are in right now. But then the third lens is, yes, there is the age that is to come. And there's always the apocalypse that's on the horizon. So if we understand these three lenses of struggle, well, we see, okay, what's our track record look like? There's always been some form of conflict that's happened in the past. So what's that tell us right now? If I open my eyes to the life that I'm living right now, Chances are there's a bunch of conflicts and struggles that are happening not only to me, but those I love. Well, and then what does that mean if I'm in the middle of all the struggle? Well, something is coming. But the fulfillment that we see, the unveiling, if you will, that comes along within the gospel apocalyptic literature is that Christ is coming. Christ is offering us the possibility of salvation. So even though we're experiencing all of these hardships, we've seen them in the past, we see them right now, and we see them coming on the horizon, ultimately what is coming is his second coming, his parousia. And in his second coming, we don't see a destruction. Rather, we see a transfiguration because the whole of creation is then transfigured in him. So if we look at the actual text, what do we see? Well, we see starting in verse 5 that some of the people speak about the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So this is, again, tying us back to the beginning of the chapter where the people were giving their tithes and making their offerings. And Jesus, within the beginning of the chapter, was showing the example of the widow and how her offering was even greater than theirs. And yet... We still hear the people in verse 5 saying, oh, isn't it great that we have all these stones and wonderful things in the temple? So Jesus, in his classic reorientation method of teaching, says to them, as for these things which you see, so that's the temple and all the things that are on it, there will come a day when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he points to the temple. And he says, that beautiful temple, the temple that you guys are fawning over, there's going to come a day where it's leveled. And this is prefiguring what happened in the year 70 AD when the Romans came through and leveled the temple in Jerusalem. Which, historically speaking, since we know that St. Luke's Gospel was written within the mid-70s, this has already happened. So we hear the people ask him, all right, well, if Teacher, if you know that these things are coming, teacher, tell us, what, what will this be? What will be the signs when this is going to take place? Because again, they're pointing towards this physical temple. 
and they're pointing towards this current calamity that's coming. But Jesus, again, is going to reorient their attention. Because he says to them, Take heed that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for this must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So the people hold a lot of value within the temple. Obviously, the temple is at the center of their ritual practice, and it's at the center of their lives. The entire city is centered around the temple. And yet Jesus tells them, even this is going to fade. Even this will be destroyed with time. And so they ask, okay, when, when is this massive calamity going to be? This is a very detrimental thing in their eyes because, again, their entire life is centered around the temple and the sacrifices and whatnot that they make there. And yet, Jesus points them to the temple of his body rather than the physical temple. Because when he says, take heed that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. He's again showing them that they are not exclusively to worship in this temple of stone. Rather, the church, as we're going to see within the book of Acts, is the body of Christ. The church is something greater than just a building. Rather, the church, ecclesia, it's all of us together. And so if we're going to be tempted to be led astray, what we see is that an example of one of these temptations is the destruction of the things around us, would be also the destruction of the temple. And from that, we're going to have many people saying that I am he, that is, I am the Christ. And this is where we understand part of our concept of antichrist within the scriptures. So I think it's important to define these terms. An antichrist is anyone who is opposed to Christ. So yes, there is within St. John's uh, Apocalypse this language of Antichrist, and we'll get into that when we get to St. John's Apocalypse. But it's important for us to realize that if Jesus is the Christ, anyone who says, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am going to be the one who liberates you from whatever oppressive force might be coming your way, that's not the true Christ. That's not the one who are, we are supposed to follow. And yet the temptation will be there whenever these leaders come along that say, I'm offering you liberation. I'm offering you freedom. And the temptation will be, I'm going to follow you. And the reason for that is because, well, you're saying all of these problems I'm dealing with, you're going to take away as long as I just follow after you. Where the true Christ, Jesus, doesn't take away our burdens in that same manner. Rather, he walks with us. He takes up his cross and then simultaneously follows along with us as we bear our crosses. So that's the difference that we see here between the Christ, Jesus, and these antichrists. These antichrists are leading us towards themselves, and that could be any leader. Yet Jesus, ultimately, is leading us not only towards himself, but the Father. So there's always this direction, uh, redirection that's taking place. 
And so when we see all of these things playing out, we begin to realize that life is very complicated. And we see that playing out within this apocalyptic literature tremendously because the people are going to be constantly bombarded with these horrifying sights, as we're going to see over and over again throughout this chapter. And because of that, they're going to say, okay, I'm going to follow this leader because that leader is going to take this way. Or rather, I'm going to follow this person who says that the end is here because that breaks down some of the unknown that we have in the midst of all of these hardships. Yet Jesus tells us very sternly at the end of verse 8, do not go after them. And yet, in verse 9, we hear, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for this must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So when he tells us do not go after him, he's acknowledging that reality. The temptation will always be there for us to follow people who seem to explain to us in some rational way how the end is coming, or these are the signs of the time. And yet, if they're not rooted in Christ, or are they doing? They're leading us away from him. They're becoming these anti-Christ, these anti-Christ figures. And so the warning is, this is going to continue to be a reality. We're going to see wars. We're going to see tumults. And yet, don't be afraid. His salvation has truly come. I am here with you. I have not abandoned you. And we're going to see the full manifestation of this when he offers his life for the life of the world in two shortcoming chapters. So we need to realize that even though all of these hardships continue to afflict us, the reality is that's how it's always been. That's how history continues to play out. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the example of Lot and the example of Noah, they married and they were given in marriage. Everything was normal. And then the flood came. Or with the example of Lot, everything was going as normal as it could with Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet we saw what was truly underneath the surface. And eventually, what happened? Well, calamity struck. So you have these constant ebbs and flows. Societies rise and societies fall. But Christ tells us the end will not be at once, because this is not the sign of the ultimate end. And it's important for us to realize before we move on that the end that's experienced is not the end of the messianic age or the end of the age that is promised. Rather, it is the end of this age ruled by sin and death. And the reason why all of these destructive analogies come into play is because when that age ends, it's not going to be very happy. Because again, this age is ruled by sin and death, these negative things. And yet, within the light of the second coming, this age is transfigured. This age is transformed. This age is dissolved. And that doesn't mean that the world explodes and there's going to be this drastic example of that. But rather, what it means is that the world will return to its fulfilled state, the state that it was always intended to be, because Christ is actively transfiguring the world 
And all of us who call ourselves Christians and live a life centered in him, we're co-workers in that. And we're aiming towards that ultimate goal. And a classic scriptural example of why Christ isn't going to come and destroy this world and give us a new one is going all the way back to Genesis, when God created the world. And when God creates everything, what does he declare? Well, he declares it to be good. And human beings, when he creates them, he declares them to be very good. It's the human beings who fell. It's the human beings who brought us into this world of sin and death that we're in now. And yet, they still retain this divine image of God that we spoke about earlier. They still retain that dignity. So much so that Christ himself becomes a human being. Christ himself takes flesh. So if the created order was so disgusting and distorted that there's no saving it, well, then why would God enter into that order? Well, the reason for that is so that way he could continue to transfigure it. So that way he could continue to lead us towards him in the fulfillment of how all of this was intended to be. So this is our journey. This is our task. Because as Christians, we're called to be good stewards, co-working with Christ, so that way this world, which is entrusted into our care, may continually return to its intended state in the embrace of the Father. So that way when Christ comes again, when we have this return of the Son of Man, then true transfiguration can take place of not only us, but the whole of creation. So moving on to verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be a time for you to bear witness or testimony. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you the mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends. And some of you they will put to death, and will, you will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So in verse 10, again, we hear of these tumults. We hear of these nations that will continue to rise up against nations. This war happens to be something that's a consistent throughout all history. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. Because again, illness and these natural calamities are something that continue to happen. And there will be terrors and great signs from the heavens. But before all of this, he tells us, they will lay hands on you. So now he's referring directly to the Christians. So all of us who are following Christ, in some way, will experience the same persecution that he himself experienced. As we're going to see, what's going to happen in the next chapter? Well, they're going to lay hands on him, and they're going to bring him before tribunals. They're going to persecute him. They're going to scourge him. 
Ultimately, they're going to kill him, but it's through his death on the cross that he offers eternal life to all of us. And yet, what he's telling us here, starting in verse 12, is that if we are going to live lives centered in him, and if this is what they did to him, it's not a stretch for us to believe that they will do the same to us. They'll lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. When we get into the book of Acts, this is exactly what we're going to see happening to the Christians of the first century. Because in their Christ-centeredness, what's happening is they're shining that light on a darkened world. But when they shine that light on this darkened world, what happens? Well, in response to that, the children of this age are blinded. In response to that, the children of this age, because they don't want to accept the truth that they see in front of them, try to rid themselves of that truth in the same way that two chapters ago we saw the leaders of the people set out to do the same with Jesus. And yet, what we see here in verse 13 is that this will be a time for you to bear testimony, witness. And it's that same witness that we see from the martyrs. And yet, in verse 14, we hear, Settle it beforehand in your minds not to meditate on how you're to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So Jesus is telling us not to be anxious when these things occur. If we are truly living with Christ at the center of our being, well then, he's going to give us what we need whenever these hardships come up. And this is why we're constantly repenting, and this is why we're constantly reorienting our life towards him. Is it's all too easy for us to fall short of this goal. It's all too easy for us to become anxious and not settled in our mind whenever a conflict is coming up. And yet Christ is assuring us here that he'll give us what we need. He's assuring us here that he'll be with us and that we will be able to give witness by allowing him to shine forth. Because the defense that's being given here isn't a defense of the self. Rather, it's a defense of Christ. Because when the Christians are being persecuted, as we see here, they're not being persecuted for their own namesake. Rather, they're being persecuted in the name of Christ. So if they're defending themselves out of their own name, well, what's happening? Well, that's a missing of the mark. That's not giving witness. So we need to constantly, when we're struggling and feeling as though we're being persecuted, ask God to reveal to us his truth. Ask God to manifest himself through us because it's very easy to conflate true persecution, the name of Christ, with a personal victimhood complex. And what I mean by that is if you're perceiving that people are victimizing you and yet you can't find this peace, chances are you're not making the right type of sacrifice. You're not making the right type of offering. And this is something I'm constantly guilty of because oftentimes you get frustrated and you look at your life and you say, okay, look, look at all these things that are going wrong. If only all of these other people would change and stop victimizing me, then things would be better. Well, with this mindset, especially when I have it, I notice that 
I'm missing something. Because I think if I'm going to change this person, well, then everything is going to be better. But the reality is, as we've seen in this whole passage, there's going to continue to be conflicts. There's going to continue to be catastrophes. All of these things will continue to occur. And human beings will always have some capacity for being hard-hearted. Yet, in the face of all of that, what are we called to do? It's not to lament and be angry or think about how we're supposed to justify ourselves. Rather, we're supposed to repent and turn to Christ and allow for him to transfigure every single situation that we are in. So that way he will give us the mouth of wisdom to be able to say or do what it is that needs to be said or done. And yet this will continue to get worse. We hear in verse 16, you'll be delivered up by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you they will even kill. Here are the extreme examples that this life in Christ could possibly lead to. And yet we're assured in verse 17 that even though we'll be hated for his namesake, not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So yes, they may be able to kill the body. And yes, we're going to continue to struggle and go through so much hardship. But we're still accounted for in full by God. God loves us to the point where he says, not even a hair of your head will perish. So even though the children of this age might be able to kill the body, by the endurance of the Christians, and this endurance is setting out to live a life in Christ constantly, they will gain true life. So this is the contradiction of our faith. Because if we live lives of looking at the world with eyes of this generation, well, what do we see death as? We see death as an end. And yet, if we look at our life within the eyes granted to us by Christ, who offers his life for the life of the world, dies on the cross, and then through his resurrection, transfigures the world and offers us all a possibility of eternal life in him, well, then we can see the true goal that we're being called towards. So moving on to verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for theirs are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas for those who are with child, and for those who give suck in those days. For great distress shall be upon the earth, and wrath upon the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trotted down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So here we see Jesus making another prefiguration, another prophecy, and that's going to be of the destruction of Jerusalem in total within the year 132 AD. And what we see here is that Jesus is telling the people the signs of what is going to come in this immediate historical reality. And the reason for that is, well, 
some people need to be able to flee. In the same way that Lot was warned of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and was able to leave with his wife and children, although his wife was stuck there, she turned into a pillar of salt, what we see here is that the Christians are being told the same thing. Because this is not the very end in itself. Rather, this will be the destruction of the city that will come. And yet these are going to be days of vengeance, full of wrath. And we see lament here by Jesus, because he says, Alas, for those who are with child and for those who give suck in those days, for great distress shall be upon the earth and wrath upon the people. So when the city is destroyed, we're going to see the destruction of the sacred center for the Jewish people. We're going to see the destruction of the place where the children of Israel continued to give glory to God. And as a result of that, there's going to be so much calamity. There's going to be people slain by the edge of the sword and people led into captivity, becoming slaves to all the nations. And we see that Jerusalem is going to be leveled. It's going to be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So I think it's important here to highlight what this means. Because even though the temple is destroyed, the city of Jerusalem is no more. Well, in Christ, what happens? All of humanity is now offered the possibility of eternal life in him. That's what is referred to in this time of the Gentiles. Because now the church is going to go out into all nations. And Jew and Gentile alike are going to be invited into Christ's fold, into the kingdom. So all of these calamities are going to continue. The reality of history within our fallen context, within the context of this age, is going to continue to play out until all of the people that have the possibility of entering the kingdom of God have come into existence as are represented here in the Gentiles. So if all of us are accounted from, from our mother's womb, as we're told within the Psalms by God, well then, if that's the case, the end, as we perceive it with his second coming, will not come until all of us have come into existence until all of us who can enter his heavenly kingdom are here. And so even though we see all of these calamities and we see all of this hardship and destruction, we know that there is something better which is coming. We know that there is fulfillment that is on the horizon. And that's the continued hope that we see playing out over and over again within this chapter. And that's going to be made all the more explicit in this next section that we're about to get into. So moving on to chapter 25. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, in perplexity, at the roaring of the seas and waves, men fainting with fear and with forbidding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, look up and raise your head, because your redemption is drawn near. So these calamities are going to continue. Hardship is going to continue to be this motif that plays out over and over again. And we're going to experience it in these dramatic ways. We're going to see it in the sea. 
people are going to faint with fear of forbearing with everything that's going on in the world. And even the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, at the very end, what will we see? At the very end, we will see the parousia. We will see the reunion of the son of man with his creation when he returns as is depicted in the book of Daniel. And when we see him coming, he's coming in the cloud with power and great glory. So when Christ comes again, that's going to be an unmistakable reality. All people are going to be exposed to his power and great glory within his coming. And yet we see in verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, look up and raise your head because your redemption has drawn near. We need to ask ourselves what the signs of the times are that are being described within the scriptures. Because again, if we believe that we are participants in the sage, but we're not of the sage as Christians, well, that means we're already seeing these signs and things in our midst. And we see that through the great works that the saints do. Because when Christ comes into the world, there's a shift. There's a reason why we use, at least now from a Christian context, the ADBC distinction before Christ and in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. And the reason for that is from a historical context, there's a recognition that from the birth of Christ, there's something different within the world. And that difference is, well, now the Messianic age has come. It has not come in its fulfillment because that is something that will come at a later date when Christ returns. However, we're going to see all these signs. We're going to see these realities. In fact, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, what we're going to see? We're going to see them speaking in tongues. We're going to see them raising the dead. They're going to be doing all of these things, not of their own accord, but in Christ's name. And so what do we see here? Well, when we're told now, when these things begin to take place, that's all of these signs, we're to look up and raise our head because your redemption has drawn near. This is a reminder that all Christians, period, need to be angling their entire being upward. And the dichotomy that we have is between looking downward, as we'll see when we get to verse 34, and orienting ourselves towards the fulfillment that has come in Christ. All too often, we fall into the trap of being fixated on the things of this age and of this world. And yet, Christ is constantly pointing us towards this higher reality. He's showing us the fulfillment of all of these things. Yet we have a choice. Our choice is, are we going to live for these things that are fading, that is centering our lives around career or wealth, or what have you? Or are we going to use these gifts that God has given us and entrusted to us for his glory so he can ultimately transfigure them? I think too often we kind of miss the mark in thinking that, well, for me to be able to be a true follower of Christ, I need to sell everything I have, drop my entire life, and just become a hermit or a monk somewhere. And that misses the reality of our saints because if we look at the lives of all of our saints they're vastly different there's common motifs in that they followed a life centered in christ 
and ultimately were perfected in him. But all of these individuals came about this from different paths. All of these individuals had different backgrounds. All of these individuals had completely different narratives. And it's through that that we realize in their example, our life is the same. So we're constantly called to be looking upward, not rejecting all of the gifts that have been given to us, but rather figuring out, okay, how can I offer up all of these gifts that have been given to me so they can be transfigured in this way? And yet, if we're fixated on the gifts that are given to us and we miss Christ in the equation, well, what happens? We look downward and we miss his redemption drawing near. So we need to look up and raise our heads. Because truly, our Redeemer is always on the horizon. And he's not only on the horizon coming in the second coming, but he is here with us, helping us to bear one another's burdens as we struggle through our life in him. So moving on to verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all of the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus gives a brief parable of a fig tree, and all trees for that matter. And in the parable, he says that as soon as you see them begin to blossom or take leaf, you know that the summer is near. In the same way that the signs of the trees tell us that the summer is near, the signs of the messianic age tell us that his second coming is drawing near, that the kingdom of God is drawing near. So when we hear about the miraculous lives of the saints— and we experience God in the little ways that we can in this age, well, what's that reminder of? Well, that's a reminder of the age that has come and is coming. So when we experience miracles or see these miraculous things happening in our life or in the lives of others, that's not something that's magic. That's not something that's calling us to fixate on it in itself. Rather, that's something that is occurring for us to be able to give glory to God, ultimately. So when we see these signs, and when we see these things, well, what do they allow for us to do? They allow for us to have a moment of reorientation, of looking towards God, the one who is the source of all of these things, the one who is the source of all of these signs. Because again, everything that is done by the saints is done in the name of Christ. Everything that is given witness by the martyrs, they given witness on the behalf of Christ. And the same goes for the persecution of the martyrs. Because when the saints and the martyrs are persecuted by the children of this age, they are not the ones being persecuted. Rather, Christ is the one who's being persecuted by them. And yet we need to remember the words of Christ on the cross. Because even though Christ is persecuted, and subsequently, we're persecuted for being children, living, lives centered in his name. On the cross, Christ says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. 
And so we're called to follow him in like manner. And yet these signs of the time, that is the drawing near of the kingdom of God, they're not here for us again to get on a soapbox and say, no, this is the precise date when the world is coming to an end. Because for the Christian, the world is always coming to an end. But that end isn't an end. Rather, that end is a transfiguration. So when we see the signs of the time, what we're called to do is raise our eyes upward, heavenward, and remember where we're all going and do the work in the here and now so that way we can be compatible with that reality. Because as we hear, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This generation isn't just referring to the people who are sitting and listening to Jesus in the first century. It doesn't refer to what we perceive as being a generation, this 40-year gap. Rather, it's referring to all those who are in Christ. Because Christ, again, is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. So if throughout the entire Old Testament we hear these deceased people being accounted for by God, we know that they are in his generation, that they are in his kingdom and ultimately within his family. So that's why when we hear truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place, we hear that if we truly live a life centered in him, we will not experience destruction. Heaven and earth will pass away. So our whole concept of reality may pass away. But his words will not pass away. So if he is saying this to us, he being Christ, the Logos, the word who in the beginning brought all into creation, well then this is how he's sealing this reality. Saying my words will not pass away. If I'm saying this to you, this is your hope. And your hope is ultimately rooted in me. And moving on to the final section of this week's chapter, verse 40, uh, 34, rather. But take heed to yourself, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a snare. For it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth, but which watch at all times, pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So within this last section of the Apocalypse of St. Luke, we hear Jesus say, take heed for yourself, lest your heart be weighed down by dispiation and drunkenness and cares of this life. So what's this a warning against? Again, we need to be looking upward. So if we allow for our heart as the center of our being to be weighed down with the distractions of this age, well, what happens? We can't look up. We can't see what is truly coming. And this is why we always need to ask ourselves the question of why are we doing what we're doing? 
And this can apply to literally any aspect of our life. Because if we can't answer that purely, well then chances are we need to retool some things. If we're going out and drinking and just living those types of lives where that's like the center of our being, well then we're missing the mark. Now that's not me being a Puritan and saying, okay, yeah, you're never supposed to have drinks or anything. But you need to always ask yourself, well, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? I think we've all been in those periods of life, myself definitely included, where you're like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to go out and drink and do all these things to, to basically wash everything away, to not be conscious. Well, and then if you truly ask yourself why you're doing that, well, it means you're running away from something. You're not looking at the reality that's in front of you. And what Jesus is reminding us here is that if we're living for distractions, that is anything that will take our mind off of reality for a while, well, we fall into the temptation of this end coming, this reality being here, and yet it being a snare for us. And the reason why it becomes a snare or a trap is because we've spent so much time distracting ourselves even though we know what we're called to do. And when that end comes, when he returns, whether that be at the end of our life or whether that be in the second coming, well, what will we perceive his coming as? Well, we'll perceive it as a trap. We'll perceive it as something that is unpleasant. And the reason for that is because we weren't vigilant. We weren't prepared. Now, this isn't me saying that, okay, you know, we need to constantly be on the ball because that's something that we're totally capable of. That would be ridiculous for me to look around and say, all right, everyone, like we're totally free of sin. There's no way that we'll never miss the mark. But what that is, well, actually, what it is that I'm trying to say is that we need to be ever vigilant to the point where if we see we're off base, if we see that we're missing the mark, or our instinct is to repent and get back on track rather than continue to live lives that are blinding ourselves to the reality that's right in front of us. Yes, we're always going to fall short of the kingdom. Yes, we're going to fall into the realities of temptations for living for the things of this age and fixating ourselves on the ground rather than looking up to the glorious coming that we're in the midst of. Yet we're constantly being called heavenward. We're constantly being reoriented towards a higher calling. And it's our call to allow for our whole life to be transfigured. And the reason for this, as we see in verse 36, but watch at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. So what are all these things? Well, again, there are these snares. There are these temptations. So if we're given the strength through prayer and we're watchful at all times, well, what happens? Well, we get out of the snare. We don't fall into the pit. And as all of these things take place, that is all the temptations and struggles and the hardships of our life, well, what will the ultimate manifestation be? What is the ultimate telos or goal that we've been aiming towards? What's well, to be able to stand before the Son of Man when he comes again? So all of these things that we say we're supposed to do as Christians, they don't happen in isolation. 
we don't just believe in rules and ways that we're supposed to live our life for the sake of rules and order. Rather, we do these things so that way Christ can transfigure the whole of our life. We orient ourselves towards him so that way he can be the fulfillment of all that we experience. And this is important for us to wrap our head around because if we live lives that are detached from that whole, well, then we're fragmentary or scattered. And we see that whenever we live for the things of this age. If we live to have a career for the sake of having a career, well, where does that lead? Because with time, you're not going to be able to operate at the same capacity that you were able to at one point within your career. At some point in time, you're going to reach a ceiling of where you can go within your career. And at a certain point, you're going to get too old to be able to do whatever you're doing in your career. That's just reality. Now, that's not me saying, okay, everyone, drop everything you're doing, quit your jobs, and leave. But rather, what I'm saying is we need to ask ourselves the questions of why are we doing what we're doing? And how is God calling us to use these gifts and these talents that have been trusted to us? Towards his glory. Because at the end of the day, when Christ comes again, we're all going to be standing before him. We're all going to be in his presence. And yet, we need to ask ourselves, if we're standing in the presence of Christ, will we be able to receive his light as eternal joy and life and love? Because we've done everything that we can in the here and now to allow for his joy and light and love be at the core of our being and be shared with others? Or are we going to experience that light and joy and love as torment and fire? Because we've done everything in this life to reject it, and then in the life to come, continue to do so. These are the questions we need to wrestle with. Because ultimately, we're called to have Christ at the center of our being. That's why we call ourselves Christians. And for all those who've been baptized in the Christ, have put on Christ forevermore. And if we're going into the world with the breastplate of Christ, with him as our defender, well then, in his name, we'll be able to withstand any of these calamities that he's continued to speak about. And yet we see in the final section that even when Jesus' coming passion is on the horizon, what does he continue to do? Well, we hear every day he's teaching in the temple. And by night, he went out and he lodged at the Mount of Olives. And that's going to be where he's ultimately betrayed. And yet, even though he knows that reality is on the horizon, he's not hiding from it. He's not sitting away on the mountain and preparing. Rather, he's going out and he's preaching the gospel to the people. We see here in the early morning, he goes out. And yet, the people are drawing near to him to hear his every word. So when we experience all of these hardships and when we see the reality of our life, we need to ask ourselves, how can Christ transfigure this reality? What is it that Christ is calling us to do? Is ultimately, even in the time leading up to his own suffering, what is he doing? He's reaching out to others. He's trying to raise us up and offer us the good news of his glorious resurrection that is soon to come. So whenever we struggle, whenever we go through any hardship, we need to ask ourselves, how can Christ transfigure this? And that might be something 
incredibly difficult for us to do. Because Lord knows that there's no lack of the depths that people can fall into within the various calamities in their own life. But we have a hope. And that hope is in his resurrection. Because it's through his death on the cross that Christ, the only innocent one, takes on suffering, entering into the totality of our human experience. And it's through that death, when the architect of life enters into the grave, that death itself is dissolved. Death itself is transfigured. And ultimately, we all have the possibility of eternal life in him. So thank you all again for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Again, next week, we will not have a session, but we'll pick up again the following week with live sessions at St. John the Baptist Greek Orthodox Church in Boston South End, Wednesday nights, starting around 7.30 p.m. And the recordings will continue to go out on Friday mornings. So again, thank you all for listening to the session. I pray Paniya be with all of you as we get to the end of the Dormition uh, fast and the feast of the Dormition. Until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner Give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.